down to earth on News Talk with a Monday, an asset manager investing in tomorrow today to shape a better world for all. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. From climate change to species extinction, we cover the toughest challenges with leading experts and celebrated thinkers. You'll hear diverse views as we try to find common ground in how to fix our most pressing global crises. On the show today, we find out how to stop trashing the planet with our waste. Panda Group's Des Crinian explains where our rubbish really goes. Voice Ireland's Mindy O'Brien on why recycling is not the solution. Stephen Thornhill and Claire Downey get us to rethink reuse. And the Business Post's Daniel Murray is my guest this week for My Green Life, where he'll give us his perspective on Ireland's media coverage of environmental issues. It's time to head down to earth. We would also love to hear from you. What's your view of our waste problems? Are you confused about what goes into your recycling bin? Does litter drive you mad like it does for me? You can email us at downtoearth@newstalk.com. But now, with every person in Ireland generating 600 kilograms of waste each year, that's over 75 bin bags worth of waste from each of us annually, it's clear our waste problems are not going away. And my first guest is here to give us the lowdown on what happens to our waste once it leaves our home. Des Crinian is the Managing Director of Recycling for the Panda Group, providing waste management solutions across Ireland. Welcome to the show, Des. Thank you for that. Des, 600 kilograms of waste from each person year after year sounds like an awful lot of trash. So how do we fare compared to other countries in terms of how much waste we're generating and how we deal with it? Yeah, I think how we fare on our waste arising, so how much everyone, you know, how much waste we make each year. I, I think we're not as bad as we were, were made out to be. I think we're very, what we're very good at is recording and we have a great, very good understanding of the amount of waste that every person generates in Ireland because the industry has invested a lot of money on you know chipping your bin every truck has a waste cell so we know exactly how much so that that's something maybe to take comfort on so we we know where we are whereas a lot of what we're finding is a lot of the other European countries they're reporting maybe better statistics or lower waste arisings but I'm not sure if they're if they're as accurate as we are so that's something just to be aware of so I think uh, uh, while it seems high at least we know it's accurate. And, and so where's our waste going and how are we dealing with it? You'd be glad to know that we're no longer d- dependent on landfill at all. So, you know, Panda Waste, everything it collects, at the very least, it goes to make energy. So that's either energy for electricity or steam. Uh, then it goes to make a fuel that replaces coal in cement kilns and other industrial applications. So, you know, we can make a fuel now that replaces coal. And then uh, as much as we possibly can, the next material then is composted or goes for anaerobic digestion that also makes energy and fertilizer and and then all your recycled material is separated uh, is presented and made into a raw material that goes to factories to be made back into products so if we're actually turning our waste into energy uh, rather than placing it in landfills now why do you feel that we need to improve our recycling rates well, it's it's always good. I mean, when we look at what we call the waste hierarchy, we always want to move up the hierarchy. So the first thing is, OK, reduce. And you mentioned it. Let's reduce the amount of waste that we that we generate. And that's, you know, reduce the packaging, try and reduce our food waste, be more sensible with what we buy. Then let's look at reusing. So don't throw 
anything out if we can at all let's go back to you know generations before us lived in, in a certain way and let's try and buy something that's going to last longer or buy something that we can reuse then if we have something and it has to be recycled let's make sure that number one we don't cause litter with it that's the biggest problem i see or one of the biggest problems then number two when we have it so if, we, if, we, if we're not throwing it around the countryside or out the window of our car we have it at home in our house we have three bins or most houses have three bins. Everyone has two bins and let's use them correctly. So if you have general waste that you think you can do nothing with it, that goes in your in your general waste or usually what we call the black bin. And that's what goes to make the energy. Your food waste, if, if you live in a village in a town, you will have a compost bin. And, and I, I'm encouraging everyone, if it's available, please use it. So your food waste goes in that. That goes to make fertilizer and also to make energy really good use. And then your last, your green or blue, your recycle bin. That's where really, that's where really we can make a difference by putting all your bottles, your cans, all your paper into that bin. Don't throw them away into the other two bins where they're in the wrong place and don't litter. Bring, bring, your, bring your water bottle home with you and put it in the right bin. And that will really, it'll change the dial on our litter issue that you see when you're driving around the country and on the beaches and everywhere. But it will also help us really increase the amount of recycling, proper recycling we do in the country. We heard a couple of years ago that China had stopped accepting recycling from the EU because of issues around contamination. And I think it surprised a lot of people that we're not recycling most of these products within the country. We're shipping them to places like China or India to be recycled. So, uh, you know, this to me seems we've got transport emissions associated with that shipping. It doesn't seem to be a very efficient system. Uh, what actually is happening to our recycling once it leaves our houses? Okay, well, I think I think you have to understand maybe a little bit the global economy. So, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, whatever way you look at it, a lot of things we buy come or are made in China or in Asia. So if you picture it, that shipping container ships that those goods into into Europe or into and then into Ireland, we consume the goods and then we either have you know we either have the packaging or we have the goods when we're finished with them that need to be recycled so the shipping container was going back to asia empty so actually the transport and the logistics of it were not as bad or as damaging to the environment as you know maybe initially thought because the containers come back the factory was in asia so we had a circular economy albeit it was a very oblong economy for want of a better way of putting it but that was working now the chinese and asia want to say the problem was some of the materials were, were that were recycled were not of high quality and maybe they weren't being recycled to as high a standard as we would have in europe so china closed that door and we in panda now send all of our recycled material into Europe. So we, we've shortened that kind of circle now. So the circular economy is more circular and we're using Europe. So the shipping is less. And what we're finding is that the quality of the recycling is much higher now as well. But that does demand that people are more considerate what they put in the bin, because, you know, we need to have, if we take nothing away from this, but it needs to be clean, loose and dry. If we get the material in the bin and it's clean, loose and dry, even if something's not recyclable, at least we can see it and we can handle it. We can separate it from the good recycling material, where if it's wet and damp and maybe food waste or, or worst case, maybe there's nappies of that on it. That means you just cannot separate it and it's ruined anything around it that is touched. So it's really important now that we've gone to the circular economy within Europe, that we have much better quality in our bins. And that means that we're we're adding the value and we're, we're making materials back out of your recyclates 
or doing it in Europe, then we're making the new product and that's staying within Europe. It's adding value, it's adding jobs, and it, we're creating what's known as this new green economy. Is there an argument that we should have our own indigenous recycling facilities here in Ireland instead of exporting this recycling to other countries to really create a, a more circular economy within Ireland? We have to look at it and we are looking at it. We're looking very closely with, you know, with all the stakeholders, be it the REPAC, the Producer Responsibility Group, the Department of Environment, the local councils, the local whirlers. We're looking at this very closely, but there is always a balance between economies of scale and what makes sense. Remember, Ireland is really, you know, it's a small, small, a small country on the edge of Europe where our total population is smaller than most of the cities in, in, in UK or Europe. So sometimes we have to be realistic. Sometimes it's difficult to get uh, the economies of scale. And also because historically Ireland is not a heavy industrial country, we don't have that infrastructure that they, that we see in UK or in Northern Europe, where you know there are large factories, there are large industrial sites where recycling uh, factories fit better than they may in Ireland. So I think it's a balance. I think there is room for it. I think there's a lot of room for, you know, the reuse part in Ireland. Uh, as I say, we make the fuel that's used in the cement kilns. We make the fuel that's used in the incinerators here that produce electricity. So, I mean, we're doing a lot of work like that. There is some small plastic recycling going on in Ireland. There's very little paper, but paper tends to happen on a huge scale. So we're looking at opportunities that even as we speak, we're looking at some opportunities in Ireland. But I think we have to balance it with with, you know, the economies of scale. So even though we're recycling nearly 50 percent of our waste now, which isn't bad, we still have a good bit of work to do to meet that future EU recycling target of 65 percent by 2035. What do you think are going to be the biggest challenges to getting there? Yeah, a couple of the biggest things are we have to be uh, we have to be very uh, aware that we can only recycle something if it's recyclable. So the first point is let's start at the materials on the market. So whatever you bring into your house, you know, if it's not recyclable, we'll never we we'll never reach that target. So we're working yet again. We're working very closely with the retailers, with the packaging guys, to make sure that they're putting. It, packaging on the market that is actually recyclable and it's easily recyclable you know you can recycle enough of materials but some of it's very difficult so some of the plastic film for instance because it's made up it's quite a complex and it's made up of different types of barriers and that to en enhance shelf life or to make it look more shiny because people like that that's quite difficult to recycle so we're working very closely with with packagers to put much more simple plastics on the market that can be recycled. So that's the first thing. We would ask the people at home, as I said, use your bin correctly, keep it cl clean, loose and dry. And then also litter, please, when you're out and about, bring your litter home, put it in the right bin and suddenly we're recycling. We're at a pivotal point in Ireland's waste policy with the new National Waste Action Plan published last September and now under consultation for comment. And that includes a new deposit and return scheme on plastic bottles and cans. Do you think all of this might be a game changer for how we manage our recycling? Absolutely. I think I, I think the fact that we are having this conversation now is fantastic because it gets people thinking about what they do with their waste. You know, and it's something that we, we forget. It's easy to look at, you know, at the front when the, when the, the groceries or the shopping or the nice new shiny TV is coming in the front door. But people forget then that the packaging goes out the back door. And, and that's both at home and within industries. It, it doesn't get enough recognition sometimes. So I think, you know, the, the new waste policy, the waste framework directive plan is, is very good. There's been huge consultation, which you have to commit 
commend everyone around the table on it. You know, the waste industry, the Department of Environment, everyone that's involved in it, I think, really have worked hard and are going in the right direction. Uh, the deposit return scheme that's coming down the line, I think there's a huge opportunity there to uh, increase recycling rates, of course, to uh, affect the littering, as I said, but also I think it's an, a, a fantastic opportunity in Ireland to actually look at it slightly differently. And there, there's opportunities to actually, rather than implement what is across the rest of Europe uh, as a you know, deposit return scheme with reverse vending machines where people store their bottles and bring them to the supermarket and, and they get a, a credit, we're looking at doing a kind of a digital one, a kind of a smart deposit return scheme where you're using your existing infrastructures. You have your deposit return scheme. It's called your green bin. And if you had a, an app on your phone, for instance, that you could uh, snap the bottle when you're finished using it, you put it in your bin and you automatically claim your credit back. I mean, we're looking at opportunities to really get involved and invest in new technology and, and being very smart and being very clever about how we're uh, how we do this, how we increase recycling and do it in an efficient way. Wow, I love a good, clever, green idea like that. Des Crinion, Managing Director of Recycling for the Panda Group. Thank you for joining us here on Down to Earth. Up next, we take a look at waste prevention efforts beyond recycling as we speak to Mindy O'Brien from Voice Ireland. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Well, I'm not sure if we can find love in a trash can, but we can certainly do better with our trash as you're listening to Down to Earth here on News Talk with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. Now, my last guest thinks we need to get smarter about recycling to deal with our waste in Ireland, but my next guest argues that we need to think beyond recycling. Mindy O'Brien is the coordinator of Voice of Irish Concern for the Environment, which is an NGO campaigning for proactive actions to reduce waste. Thanks for joining us, Mindy. Thanks, Cara. Thanks for having me. Mindy, earlier we heard a fairly positive report of Ireland's levels of recycling, though obviously they could still improve to reach our ambitious EU targets, but you've been campaigning on waste issues here for over a decade, and you formerly worked as an environmental attorney on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., so I think you know the situation internationally. How well do you think Ireland is addressing waste management by comparison? I think we're right in the middle. If you look at our European colleagues, I think our recycling rate is, is decent. It's, you know, it's in the upper echelon, you know, upper third. So we're doing okay recycling-wise. However, we are creating a lot of waste per head, um, and that's where we kind of run off the rails. Um, I know we are consistently getting a recycling rate of plastic around 34% or something like that. Um, and, you know, you can say year on year we're recycling more plastic. However, year on year we're also creating more waste. So, yes, we're recycling per tonnage more more plastic, but we still have the same percentage. Or actually, we're producing more waste. So we really need to look at how can we reduce the amount of waste we create in the first place rather than try to how to manage it at the end of the pipe. We're, we're one of the worst in Europe, actually, for the amount of plastic waste we generate, I've heard. So why do you feel that, that maybe we're the, one of the worst in this case, and, and why is this so bad for our environment in particular? Yeah, this is a real quandary, and I know the department's trying to figure out, and EPA is trying to figure out why are we worst in class. Is it our measurements? Um, or is it that we have lots of packaging? I know if every one of us go to the supermarket, we're seeing more and more fruit and veg all in 
plastic packaging. Uh, it, plastic seems to be all over the place. We have a lot of um, coffee cups and disposable bottles. So I think every one of us are seeing more and more plastic packaging. So we really need to look at see what the solutions are. Um, can we uh, avoid the creation of the waste in the first place? Can we look at reuse options? And that's what we're pushing for. Yeah, in the last few years, the Irish government has invested more money in educating the public on proper recycling. And it's something that Voice has been really involved in through your Recycling Ambassadors program. Yet you're saying now and your organization has said repeatedly that recycling is not the answer. So are you speaking out of both sides of your mouth here a little bit? No, I'm not. Thank you, Cara. The <laughs> um, thing is, um, recycling, if you look there's something called the waste hierarchy. Uh, I know that's kind of a complex term, but anyway, at the top is waste prevention. You know, then we have reduction, we have repair, we have reuse, then recycling, and then disposal. So disposal it could be incineration or landfill, and that's at the bottom of the hierarchy. So recycling is just above that. So it is one of the tools in our waste management toolbox, but it's not the first tool we reach for. And I think recycling is a good kind of introduction for people to kind of be aware of their waste. And and we work with zero-waste communities, and I hope you're speaking with one of them today. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the first thing you need to do is make sure you sort your waste correctly and know where everything goes. And you say, God, I've got a lot of that. How can I start reducing, you know, know, plastic punnets? And then look at alternatives. So we need to move up the waste hierarchy. We can't be stagnant at recycling. We need to move up and see where we can prevent it. And that's through new infrastructure, new reuse infrastructure, and make it easy for the individual when they shop that they can have a reusable container, that they have reusable cups. And there's a whole, we need a whole new way of consuming. Yeah, speaking of one of our, I think, mutual pet peeves, um, you've been really active in addressing the growing problem in the Irish landscape that is the single-use coffee cup uh, through your Conscious Cup campaign. And it's been reported that 200 million coffee cups are disposed of in Ireland every single year, which equates to six every second. I would guess that the numbers are much higher now thanks to COVID restrictions and the, the fascination with takeaway coffees at the moment. What do you think we should be doing to address our new obsession with takeaway coffee? Well, I think it's an existing uh, obsession, um, and that doesn't even address, you know, cold cups. So if you're going to um, McDonald's or anything, getting a cup of Coke or something like that, so that's a net, I mean, it's the same family of cups. Um, but, yeah, it's, we were making great progress with the Conscious Cup campaign, encouraging people to bring their own cup, and cafes would uh, give you a discount or extra points or something. However, with COVID, a lot of people got scared of, you know, COVID on the services, which is understandable. We didn't know what we were dealing with. However, um, Greenpeace um, issued a letter uh, last year, 130 uh, top health scientists, including our own Luke O'Neill. Dr. Luke O'Neill said that reuse is safe. As long as you wash it, as long as you, you know, reusable mask, reusable cups, reusable anything, as long as you wash it properly. So this has been an uphill challenge for us to change that mindset that reuse is safe. Um, there is, under the coffee cup, uh, a new – if you go on YouTube, you can see contactless coffee. And so how this works is you have a tray. The barista passes the tray for you. You put your coffee cup, your reusable coffee cup on the tray. They push it. They pull it to them. They put in the coffee. They put in whatever that you want. Is it a tea bag or hot water or whatever you want in that coffee cup? They push it back to you. You put your lid on and you leave. So they never touch your cup. You and so you're safe from whatever they have. They're safe from whatever you have. 
And I contend you're much safer with your own coffee cup because you know where it's been rather than getting something from somebody else. And also studies have shown that COVID can last up to three days on plastic or stainless steel. So plastic is not the safe material that everyone says it is in terms of COVID. I think a lot of people think they're doing the right thing right now when they buy a takeaway coffee and the cup says it's biodegradable or compostable. But you've busted some myths for me in the past on that. Why are even the biodegradable or compostable coffee cups problematic? Well, first of all, we don't have a set term for it. And so anyone can say this is biodegradable. I'm biodegradable. My computer is biodegradable. It depends on how long it takes to break down. So there is a term of art for compostable, which means it has to break down in an industrial composting facility. So this is where your brown bin waste goes, your organic waste goes. And it has to break down in 12 weeks. Um, these cups, if, you, if, if a cafe says, I'm green, I'm doing fantastic work, I'm giving you a compostable cup. All well and good, only if you put that compostable cup into a brown bin, into our organic bin, and it goes to the proper uh, treatment facility. Because if you drop that on the ground, it will stay there like any normal coffee cup. It won't break down. It needs the high heat that is generated by the composting facility to break down the, the, the molecules and break it down into its um, organic matter. So uh, if a cafe is offering you compostable cups, ask them, where do I put it? Do you have a brown bin waste or organic bin waste I can put this into? Most people won't bring it home and put it into their brown bin. So where does it go? Normal, normal rubbish bin, and you defeat the purpose. Wow. So speaking of littering, we've we've seen an increase in littering during the pandemic. Dublin City Council reported a 25 percent increase mm. last year. And and uh, we're seeing more coffee cups around the place and also those single use disposable masks full of microplastics in our scenic areas and parks. And for me, this is such a contrast to what an absolute intolerance there is for littering where I grew up in America. What do you think is causing all of this littering and how do we stop it here in Ireland? Oh. That's a good question. Litter is a real Rubik's Cube trying to get to the, how do you deal with litter? You have bad actors. I'm hoping that the reason why we have a lot of PPE um, littered around is maybe it falls out of people's pockets or it falls out of buggies. I'm hoping that people are not just discarding them into the environment. So what I encourage people to do is invest in some good, make your own or invest in some good cloth reusable masks and wash them over and over so you don't get all the disposable masks. I mean, we move away from those and get to reusable ones. It kind of goes along with our Rechoose Reuse campaign that we're launching in April. Um, so and in terms of litter, um, it's hard because, you know, you have people who might be decluttering their houses, and they say, okay, how do I get rid of this? Well, you should be donating it to charities if you can. But also, um, some people may just hire a man with a van, and they take it. They say, yeah, Mrs., we'll take it away, but you have no idea where they're going to take it, and they may just dump it out in Wicklow. So we need to make sure that if you are using a man with a van or if you're using somebody to get rid of your stuff, know where it's going and have them say, yes, I have a permit to take it to this you know, landfill or I'm going to take it here. Because you, you are ultimately responsible for the uh, disposable, disposal of your items. And I think there should be liability. If you give your stuff to a man with a van without knowing where it's going, that the liability should flow back to you. Just last year, the Irish government launched a new waste action plan championed by the Green Party and that focused on waste prevention and movement toward this idea of a circular economy. Do you think that this plan will be as transformative as it claims to be? I hope so. They, they have mapped out 200 actions 
We just need to make sure that they actually implement it and enforce it. You know, um, one of the things that we've been pushing for for years is the um, uh, implementation and the establishment of a deposit refund scheme for one-way drinks containers, so plastic drinks bottles and aluminum cans. So that, you know, people have seen that around the world. You put a deposit on the can when you, or a bottle. When you return it, you get your deposit back. So it's not a tax. It's just a deposit. And it's a way to capture that material. So that should be in place by next year, hopefully. They're moving very quickly on that. Also, uh, under the single-use plastic directive, they're banning 10 commonly used plastic items like uh, stirrers, straws, plastic cutlery, uh, balloon sticks, things that you, know, you use once and if they lost in the environment, they're gone. Um, it also establishes a, a latte levy next year, We're talking about the infamous coffee cup, so that if you have a disposable coffee cup, you pay a levy maybe of 20 cents, so encouraging you to bring your own. Um, and it also is looking to put more producer responsibilities, so uh, more responsibility on the producers who are putting the packaging onto the marketplace. So if, so if um, Tato Crisps is putting out their packaging and their crisp bag, which often is littered, um, they're going to be responsible for the cost of cleaning up, for the proportionate cost of cleaning up that litter. So right now that cost falls onto taxpayers through the, all the local authorities for picking up the litter. So uh, under this new directive, producers are going to have to pay for some of that cost. Are you optimistic that this will change the waste landscape and address a lot of the issues you've been campaigning about over the last 10 years? I have great hope. Great. And I have to say the department, working with the department now, is much, has been much easier than in the past. And I think they're listening, which is great. Um, so we just need to keep up the pressure. There are a lot of things that we're pushing for, and we just need to keep the pressure on. Well, that's nice to end on an optimistic note. My thanks to Mindy O'Brien, coordinator of Voice Ireland, for her insight and for her tireless campaigning in the war on waste. In a few minutes, we'll be talking to the Business Post, Daniel Murray, about his green life, where he'll give us insight into media coverage of environmental issues here in Ireland. But before that, my next guest take waste to a whole other level by focusing on the need to not simply recycle, but to reduce and reuse to lower their waste footprint. Stephen Thornhill is a volunteer with Cove Zero Waste, and Claire Downey is executive of the Community Resources Network Ireland's, or CRNI. Welcome to the show, Stephen and Claire. Thank you. Hi. Hi, Claire. CRNI is a community reuse and recycling network in Ireland, the only one of its kind. And your vision is to essentially eliminate the word waste from our vocabulary. How do we go about doing that? Well, there are lots of different ways we can reduce consumption and reuse. And uh, first of all, of course, we need better designed products that will last. Um, and this is actually something we're pushing for through our European networks, our reuse and right to repair. But there are lots of things we can do and actions that we can take locally. And our members um, work in lots of different ways to help reuse, um, to help people reuse. For example, uh, there are campaigns like the Conscious Cup campaign and Refill Ireland that people may be familiar with that help you get your reusable coffee cups or water bottles refilled with the Cloth Nappy Library, you can uh, learn about or borrow reusable nappies from anywhere by post. There's a toy library in Carrick Macross where you can borrow instead of buying toys. Uh, you can buy or donate secondhand goods through the network of charity shops. There's one in almost every town or village in the country. 
Um, you can get furniture and bikes and all kinds of things repaired through social enterprises like do hello revamp or deaf enterprises in Cork. You can donate or buy upcycled or refurbished um, bikes and laptops, um, clothing or paint even these days. Um, you can learn how to repair or upcycle, for example, there's courses at the Rediscovery Centre. Prevent food waste with Food Cloud, find strange or wonderful materials for creative purposes at Recreate or um, even go online these days to find uh, secondhand gems through platforms like Thriftify. And we've lots more about all of these different channels on our directory, crni.ie backslash So you, you've given a ton of examples of how we could go about reusing more in our life. Why do you feel that reuse is where the focus needs to be when it comes to addressing waste? Yeah, well, it's really at the moment uh, a very strong climate case for reuse. About 40 to 50% of all global greenhouse gas emissions are associated with making and distributing our products and food. And these are all the unseen emissions from extracting raw materials, shipping them for processing, assembling the parts from all over the world, warehousing, shipping and retail. So like if you look at any objects around your room, your laptop, or if you're listening on a, on a stereo, um, and think about what that's made from, all the base materials, the parts, the finishes, where were those uh, materials extracted from, how are they produced and assembled? Um, if you take your average phone, there are about 300 parts to a typical phone, and they include all kinds of weird and wonderful um, elements like arsenic and strontium and yttrium. And, I think, you know, just thinking about all of that, you can see pretty clearly why the impact of our stuff is so high. So if instead of throwing all this stuff away, we can keep it going for longer or do without, um, we wouldn't need to buy so much new stuff and we can avoid all of that pressure on the system and all the emissions that come with it. Stephen, Cove Zero Waste is part of a growing global zero waste movement that aims to send nothing to landfills or incinerators. So given that we generate over three tons of waste per person every year in Ireland, that to me sounds like an impossible goal. What are you guys doing to achieve this? Well, um, I should say that we're, we are all uh, volunteers and we are a volunteer group. So we're always a bit constrained by what we can do in terms of uh, funding and resources, of course. So what we mainly do is to work within our local community, um, trying to prom promote community awareness around zero waste issues. What we mainly do is, is to um, hold public talks, workshops. Uh, we do reuse cafes, repair cafes. We have a monthly market stall in our community where we uh, which is you know mainly a kind of an information shop where we're trying to promote the idea of zero waste goods uh, like like Claire was talking about there and we've just started um, a household survey where we're working with families to try and help them actually practically you know improve the separation of materials that go into the bins but more importantly to actually reduce the volumes that are going into that residual waste so we're hoping that Cove will soon become an official zero waste town and to do that we need to pretty much halve the amount of, of residual waste that goes into our bins as a starting point. Once you get down to 75 kilograms per capita, you know, you, you, you've got that zero waste status and then you move towards the, the actual level of zero waste. And I would say, I know it sounds challenging, but most of the stuff that goes into our bins are very valuable resources. And if we only just um, sorted them first, 
you know, we can, we can actually get down to zero waste. You you mentioned you're doing this as a volunteer and you joined Cove Zero Waste, uh, even though you have a very busy day job as a lecturer at UCC. So what, what inspired you to join this initiative and how are you doing in your own personal journey towards zero waste? Well, uh, I mean, I should say that uh, Cove Zero Waste was formed by local community groups getting together. So, um, you know, this um, many of us were involved in these these other groups like Tidy Towns, Cove Community Allotments, uh, you know, the, the anti-incinerator campaign case. Um, so there was already a movement happening by a lot of people within the town. Um, but personally, me, I mean, I just see it as a no-brainer. As Claire was saying, this is a climate change issue. And the more uh, we do to uh, reduce our residual waste and move towards a circular economy, the more we, we will actually reduce emissions. Claire, your network emphasizes not only the environmental benefits, as both you and Stephen have mentioned, the impact on climate change, but also the social and economic benefits of reuse. So what are the kind of benefits you're seeing in your work beyond preserving our natural environment when it comes to increasing reuse here in Ireland? There are lots of different social impacts um, from this kind of work. It's very local activity. So when you're keeping, you know, your products in circulation for longer, it tends to involve working with local businesses um, to get things repaired or uh, refurbished and return them to the local market. So it really does underpin the local economy. But um, at the moment, we estimate the sector, certainly our members employ over 700 people and I suppose more importantly perhaps provide over 2,000 training positions. Those are placements, work placements that help um, build skills and prepare people for the workplace um, and also work with over 7,000 volunteers and I suppose in addition to that um, a lot of our members would also support low-income families by making affordable goods available like homeware and clothing and furniture and also help to empower people to repair their own things, for example. Um, One example of um, that would be our member Tech to Reuse, who's been in the news recently for helping uh, bridge the digital divide for students by making available refurbished laptops at very low cost. So, um, and another member, for example, Gateway to Education in Limerick makes school uniforms and books available to students at very low cost, as well as running things like homework clubs. So it's really, really diverse impacts, but very much in the community and very local, underpinning local economy. And all more important than ever now with all the restrictions and school closures. Stephen, I think most environmentally aware people want to reduce their waste footprint in an effort to do their part to protect the natural environment. But it's getting harder and harder with all the packaging heaped upon us. So what are a couple simple changes that someone like me could start to do to reduce my household waste? I think there's an awful lot of pressure on consumers, you know, and I, I think there's always this thing about, uh, you know, us making these little changes can, can, can help. But I think the really big thing is, is, is we need a lot of big changes now. And those big changes really can only be made on a, on a policy basis. So it's a lot about government policy now. They need to start moving a lot faster than, than they've done in the past. And in particular, we need much better infrastructure. We need better material recovery facilities. We need more an- anaerobic digesters here to treat our organic waste. Having said that, I mean, I think Claire has done a very good <laughs> account of some some of the many things that we can do to reduce the amount of residual waste on an individual basis. So I think we always should be thinking about that. 
avoiding using single-use plastics when you can. And you're right, when you go into a supermarket, it's almost impossible to avoid it. So again, that needs policy, that needs changes and pressure on you know, the supermarkets to do these things. And I'm glad to see that the EU now has come, is, is bringing legislation in so that, for example, all organic separation waste will be mandatory in two years time. But individually, wherever we can try and follow the tips like, um, I don't know, using, uh, I, I noticed uh, what, one of the things that we've done here is uh, with, with the pets is to change from the plastic pouches to the, to the tins of cat food and dog food. Well, I definitely need. I definitely you. need to actually change my cat food to to the tins <laughs> instead of the plastic pouches. I never thought of that, but you're absolutely right. My thanks to Stephen Thornhill and Claire Downey for joining the conversation in this episode of Down to Earth. Stay tuned. Is coming up next. The Business Post reporter Daniel Murray will be telling me about his green life. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow today to shape a better world for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. But today, my guest Daniel Murray has gone far beyond the everyday by integrating environmental issues into his work as a reporter for the Business Post. And he joins us now here on Down to Earth. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me on, Kara. Thanks for coming. Daniel, you caught my attention two years ago when you joined the Business Post as a reporter and suddenly some excellent investigative journalism on environmental issues was coming out of the paper, which was kind of surprising for a business publication. So what inspired you to anchor climate and environmental issues into your reporting for the Business Post? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I I don't have, I'm kind of came to it in a strange way. I don't have any scientific background. Uh, I didn't even take a science subject for my leaving cert. Um, And it really, it took me a number of years to even recognize that that environment was an important thing to be uh, looking at and reporting on. I started off in media a number of years ago, working on the Tonight with Vincent Brown show. And to my shame, we barely ever looked at environmental issues when we were on the program. And that was for a few reasons, but mostly because we were dictated by the political issues of the day and it just was not the big burning domestic political issue at the time. I eventually went and spent two years working in public relations and during that time I worked with a lot of clean energy companies and it took those two years for me to get myself educated on climate and environmental issues. And then I was lucky enough two years ago to be brought into the Business Post by Susan Mitchell, who used to be our um, editor there with the Post. Um, And she asked me at the time, what was the area that I wanted to report on? And I had a look around and there wasn't very many people reporting on energy and environment issues from a business perspective. And as far as I could see, it was the big business story of the day. You know, it, it has so many repercussions for businesses from new emerging markets to the regulatory environment that they're going to be operating in to the natural world that they're going to habit like the the rest of us. And so that's why I I decided decided to start reporting on it in in that way. That's a really steep learning curve in two years to go from having no science background to to reporting on these quite complicated energy issues. What's your sense of environmental coverage here generally? I think it's good, um, you know, and it's better Like we don't have what goes on in some other countries like in the UK and maybe in Australia, where there's a huge amount of climate scepticism still in the media. Um, so we're lucky that we don't have that going on at the Irish Times and the Irish Independent have dedicated correspondents that look at it a, a, as an area uh, and that makes their coverage very good. Um, but it's also very reactive, you know, uh, daily newspapers tend not to have the time to dig down into issues um, and they tend to be reacting to whatever um, 
is happening happening on a given day, whether that be a business result being published published by a company that happens to be working in the energy or, or environment space, or whether it be political announcements like uh, Ireland announcing that we were going into a climate emergency in 2019. Uh, the good thing about working in a, in a Sunday paper for me is that I get the time to, to really start um, thinking from the perspective of what's important, digging down into issues. And I normally have at least a week, if not a few weeks, to, 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 to put pieces together. What do you think the media maybe should be doing more generally here to address these big global crises like climate change? I think that, you know, by investing in reporters who are dedicated to this coverage, it's something that makes a big difference. It takes a lot of time to educate yourself on climate and environmental and energy issues. And that's the other thing to remember is that it's not only climate and environment, these are energy issues as well. And energy issues are hugely complicated and, and hugely consequential. Uh, you know, they power our hospitals, they, you know, the health, health system over the last year during the pandemic, and um, they power so many of the essential services that we all use uh, every day. So this is an energy story as well. Um, and to educate yourself on those things, it, it takes time. So uh, investing in, in reporters who are dedicated to working on this because they have to be able as well to recognize um, the various different interests that there are out there. And there are a lot of different interests now that are, are trying to, to put across their point of view on energy and environment issues. And not everybody is always being very truthful. You recently reported on the, the growth of data centers in Ireland in particular, which are expected to double their capacity by 2025. So how concerned do you think we need to be about the impact of data centers on energy demand and carbon emissions? Yeah, this is a really good example of an energy and an environmental story that is complex. So data centers, we've heard from Airgrid recently that they're expecting the next 10 years that our entire electricity demand across all different sectors is going to increase by 50%. What's heard less is that 50% of that 50% growth is going to come from data centers. Or another way of putting that is that Ireland's energy electricity demand is going to grow by twice as much as a result of data centers over the next 10 years. So why is is that important in terms of the environment? Well, these data centers are plugged into the electricity grid, and the electricity grid is fueled by a combination of fossil fuels, and luckily for Ireland, a lot more renewables at the moment, and mostly wind. So the question becomes, as our electricity demand expands, and most of that expansion is being driven by these huge industrial users through data centers, that becomes more difficult then for us to integrate more renewables onto the grid. And AirGrid does have an ambition of, of integrating 70% renewables, so that would be wind and solar mostly onto the electricity grid by 2030. The question would be if our electricity demand is to expand by such a dramatic amount in the same time, is it making it more difficult to, to, to meet those targets? I think the answer is that it is making it more difficult, despite the fact that data, data centers are investing in renewable energy themselves. They are making it slightly easier, easier for some wind and solar projects to come online by signing contracts with them. But I'm not sure that makes up for the huge increase in demand that they are uh, that they are, they are they are making happen as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting that uh, to, to show how disproportionate this problem is in Ireland worldwide right now, data centers consume about 2% of electricity and it's set to read about reach about 8% by 2030 globally. And, you know, we're looking at 27% of all electricity consumed by data centers by 2028 here in Ireland. So that, that's just off the scale by comparison to the... It is. And, you know, it's all wrapped up in the story of the multinational sector here in Ireland as well. And it's it's one of the big success stories that so many multinational tech companies in particular have wanted to locate here. We're also located on a kind of transatlantic fiber optic cable, sub-Atlantic cable highway. So these are sub-sea 
cables that connect us to the UK, to Europe, and most importantly, onto the United States across the Atlantic. And huge volumes of data are transferred across these highways. So that's another large reason why these data centers are, are looking to locate here. But of course, there, there are other reasons as well. Some of them probably uh, tax reasons, uh, but also we have you know, a, a highly skilled workforce. And you know, we're, we're now the only English speaking language uh, country left in, in the European Union. So these are all important issues too. You're listening to Down to Earth here on News Talk, and my guest right now for My Green Life is the Business Post's Daniel Murray. The projections of increased energy demand, Daniel, have, have been used as a reason to continue investment in oil and gas infrastructure in the country, and this is a topic you've reported on extensively. Uh, so what are the biggest issues that you see facing the country in this sector? So it was interesting up until about maybe a year and a half ago, um, there was a huge amount of exploration for oil and gas going on off the Irish coasts. Um, and there was a movement here, a political movement driven really by, by people before profit to try and ban oil and gas exploration. And I think it was in 2019 that Leo Varadkar <clears throat> over at a New York uh, United Nations Assembly um, stood up and announced that we would be banning all future gas exploration. And that was quickly followed up by Eamon Ryan just in the last few months banning oil exploration. So um, we're no longer going to have any oil and gas exploration off, off the coast of Ireland. And, and some people would say that that's a good thing. The industry, of course, would say that it's, it's not a good thing and that it affects our, our, our energy security. And there, there are different arguments, obviously, that, that have to be taken into account. And with that put to bed now, the, the next step really has to do with where we are going to source our fossil fuel infrastructure um, or where we are going to source our fossil fuels from, because we are still going to need them. We import all of our oil needs. Uh, we, you know, we have no domestic oil production, although that might change um, with Barry Rowe in the, in the next year or two. And, and now we import most of our gas through pipeline connections with the UK. There is a big push now to try and develop new what's called liquefied natural gas infrastructure. And this infrastructure is basically, it allows you to liquefy gas in, in faraway markets. So the United States, for example, and um, to ship it over, to regasify it, and then to pump it into our gas grid. And there are current plans or, or, or proposals for at least four or five of these around, around Ireland, although one that was due to be constructed at the Port of Cork has been dropped recently. Um, the arguments, again, they're, they're, they're complex. Some people say we need these for energy security to ensure that we have the gas we need over the next 20, 30 years, even though we hope that the demand for that gas is, is going to decline. But other people would argue that this is going to lock in gas use, and the last thing we need to be doing is building new fossil fuel infrastructure at a time that we're in the middle of, of such a serious climate crisis. And of course, I think some people's concern is that gas coming from the U.S. would be largely from fracking, which has water quality issues and social justice issues. Is that part of the concern? Undoubtedly, uh, you know, the gas that's coming from the United States would be almost uh, entirely from fracked sources. And that's because the shale gas revolution in the United States has taken over uh, and made it one of the largest exporters of fossil fuels in the world, kind of reversing its energy fortunes in the space of only about 10 or, or 15 years. So there's no doubt that it, it would come from hydraulic fracturing. And there are both more climate issues with hydraulic fracturing because there's methane escapage, um, which is a highly potent uh, greenhouse gas. Obviously, there's the burning of the gas itself, which releases carbon emissions. But then there's very local ecological uh, and environmental impacts as well, like you say, on, on water quality uh, and even on human health. You kind of hinted there earlier about the influence of, of vested interests and, and lobbying. How influential do you think lobbying by companies and sectors is in shaping environmental policy in Ireland? 
In Ireland, I'm not so sure. In, in Brussels, I think it's very influential. Um, uh, I spent, when I was doing public relations, I spent some time over in Brussels and the lobbying presence um, of the corporate world on the ground there is absolutely huge. Uh, and they understand in great detail how legislation and directives are, are put together and policy is, is made. And of course, that policy uh, trickles down to all of the member states here. So I think a huge amount of the heavy lifting is done over in Europe from, from a corporate point of view and certainly when it comes to, to climate and, and, and environment uh, fossil fuel interests are very heavy on the ground there you, you'll regularly be invited to environmental or climate debates hosted by ExxonMobil or, or, or others over there uh, and you'll find yourself with MEPs um, or commissioners or, or other politicians and um, so I think Europe is the place where there's a huge focus of that lobbying it does happen in Ireland as well certainly one of the first stories that I wrote for the Business Post um, was that there had been something like a six-fold increase in lobbying by the Irish Offshore Operators Association, which is the oil and gas industry here in Ireland, a representative body for them. There had been about a six-fold increase in the space of two years, and this was as a result of the Climate Emergencies Bill, um, which was Breed Smith's bill from People Before Profit uh, a couple of years ago that was looking to try and ban oil and gas exploration in Ireland, uh, and they certainly didn't want to see that happen, and, and a huge amount of lobbying was, happened to, was happening to try and protect their industry, um, uh, you know, from from being affected by this bill. You've got a podcast with the Business Post called Five Degrees of Change, where your guests are asked to provide two personal and three policy changes they'd like to see. And season three of the podcast begins on March 16th. Now, I love this structure of the mix between personal and, and policy changes. So what have been a couple of your favorite changes suggested by your guests on the show? So uh, on the policy side, there's been some really great suggestions. Like we had John Sweeney, who's a climatologist, suggest removing fossil fuel subsidies. We've had Pat Cox, a former Irish politician, suggesting that we turn Ireland into a major exporter of wind energy because of our offshore wind resources. But one of my favorites was Sue Goward, and she um, was a former executive at Unilever. And she made a policy suggestion to lower the voting age to 16, which at first didn't seem uh, like your typical environmental policy suggestion. But we suddenly found ourselves talking about and um, what that would do in terms of shifting the voting demographic down, about what it would do to politicians in terms of them having to take into account the, the perspectives of a more distant future. Um, and it was a really interesting and kind of left field uh, environmental discussion as a result. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, on the personal changes, we've had lots of people doing renovation works on their own homes. We've had people quitting uh, or reducing their beef and dairy intake. But probably one of my favorites was you, Cara, who we had on the program, and uh, you were telling us how you measure your carbon footprint every year. And it's those kind of personal changes that, that I love to discuss on the podcast because I get people get in contact with me then and, and really say that they were able to take something away from it and something that they were able to implement in their own lives. I didn't I didn't bribe you or force you to say that, just to be clear. But, no. uh, I, I think you and I would both agree that a lot has changed in the media coverage of environmental issues and in the environmental policy landscape here over the last five years. So do you have any predictions predictions for what you think might change over the next 10 years here in Ireland. I just think that you know climate in particular, but even the biodiversity crisis and other environmental issues are going to come more centre stage. We can already see it happening in, in politics, the Green Party now, now in government. And um, you know these issues um, are, are, are part of everything. They're, they're, they are the big economic story of the day, the big political story of the day, um, the big business story of the day, and of course, the big environmental story of the day. And that's going to become increasingly apparent, um, not only because of the consequences of climate change, years go on, but because 
there's real change happening now. And especially when we look, you know, we, we operate within a kind of a European Union framework um, and we're about to embark on the largest man-led energy transition in, in history. Um, and that is, a, that is a huge feat. It has huge consequences uh, and it's going to permeate, I think, every part of, uh, of business, political and, and economic debate in the years to come. Well, I look forward to playing this back to you in 2031 to see if you were right, Daniel. My thanks to Daniel Murray, reporter for the Business Post and host of Five Degrees of Change for sharing his green life with us this week on Down to Earth. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. Thank you for listening and thanks to my producer, Alex Russo. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the series on podcast at Newstalk.com or on the Newstalk app. Next week, it's planes, trains and automobiles as we investigate the future of transport. But until then, stay curious.